Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. I'm not finished yet. It took me a long time to get here. Both parents have, have spoken with each other and... Uh, and they regret what happened. They've had a frank discussion with each other, and they're, they're both of them are keen to, to now focus on getting back to their county jerseys. That these fellas will get such a shell shock next Saturday evening that we'll put them back in their houses for 10 years. All right, Connor. So the news this week is the GEA's COVID advisory group has cleared the way for club activity to resume um, up into six counties from April the 12th. So fantastic news from anybody or for anybody up there. It has to be um, stressed that this is club activity, not inter-county activity, because obviously inter-county activity would be giving uh, an unfair advantage to the inter-county teams, the six inter-county teams that would be competing in the National League, hopefully in May. So it's only club activity. Fantastic news for everybody up there. Um, Connor, and uh, the right decision really from the GA. There was some people I just didn't understand it. I don't want to go over too much about what we spoke about before. They were looking for a 32 county approach. I don't see why those six counties would be punished when it's safe for them to do so. So, you know, very good. I'm currently um, looking at house prices, pr- prices in the six counties, Connor, if this kind of uh, if this kind of stuff keeps up. <laughs> I didn't expect that one. I have to say, but <laughs> yeah. it's uh, it it makes perfect sense. Um, I think uh, I think you referenced it there, and I think we've chatted about it already. That there was a couple of people in the north, actually in Tyrone and uh, elsewhere, that were suggesting that well, the the that the GA the counties the counties in the north should follow a kind of thirty-two county approach. But when your own jurisdiction is giving you clearance to resume activity, well, then why not? And had they not. It would have opened up a whole can of worms for what was to stop, you know, GA clubs maybe using community pitches and stuff like that. If there was, if there was teams and other sports being able to train in, you know, train elsewhere, why why not the GA? So yeah. I think like the COVID advisory committee probably saw that and probably saw that like the the easiest thing to do and for sense to prevail is to allow is to allow club activity to go ahead. So um, yeah, no, just, just delighted for them. And yeah, as you said, uh, slightly jealous that, that that they're a little bit ahead of where, where we are down here. Yeah, I'd say they're a good bit ahead, really, because we're talking yep. about um, potentially having inter-county return on the 5th or the 12th. Um, we know that club can't continue. That's if we go to a level four on April the 5th. We're practically, I'd say the country mentally is on level four anyways, based on the numbers. But like, I mean, the club can't get back onto level three, which might be a little bit off. So I would say those the six counties that are going back on April the 12th will be well ahead um, and, you know, and good for them. But this is this is the thing I was looking at. the I was looking at the I'm only joking here. Obviously, I was looking at that. Uh, 
uh, United Ireland debate on on the Clare Burns show the other night and the border poll. And if I was Sinn Féin, I wouldn't be pushing this through until this COVID thing um, completely you know, fixes itself and our vaccine rollout catches yeah. up with the UK because I wouldn't be too much. If I was in the six counties and I was a GA man, I, I, I might be wondering here, what way am I going to vote here? <laughs> Timing is everything, Willie, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, did, what did you make of the bowel Joe Brawley? Did you see this the other night on Clareburn, him getting cut yeah. off? I did, I did. Uh, <laughs> like, you know, I, I saw Joe's, I have seen Joe's tweets uh, on, the, on the night and I've seen Joe's tweets since and, the man has a point. Do you know what I mean? I mean, like it's uh, stuff that he was kind of talking about. It's not as if he's. Uh, it's not as if they're um, baseless allegations. There's stuff that's in the public domain, and yeah. anyone uh, anyone who wants to see what Joe was talking about can just go to his Twitter feed to see what he was talking about. But I would imagine, Wooly, that RT were heavily influenced, and I can't speak for them, but heavily influenced by the fact that on prime time a couple of weeks ago uh, or a few weeks back, something was said that led to. Um, them having to led to it led to uh, them having to pay out uh, to to a certain group that I'm not going to go into because you know that that's treading on awkward ground here. But I'd say that experience that only happened a few weeks earlier probably yeah. influenced the decision to take Joe off the air as well. Yeah, maybe it was, but like I mean, I think Claire Byrne spoke to him, you know, almost like a teacher scolding a child. I thought it was a very very unusual the way she spoke to him and like I mean she started talking about that uh, Gregory Campbell's not here to defend himself completely irrelevant and that's what got Joe kind of going and then she kind of shouted him down and saying you know I'm not going to have anyone call people names he wasn't he was saying what the DUP stand for anyways this is a GEA show but it was Joe Brawley I don't know sometimes he waffles on and he goes on too long and maybe Claire Byrne just kind of knew that about him and was trying to cut him off who knows um, what was going on there we'll move on to more GEA uh, stuff here because Gerald Lucknan has written an open letter. Um, I hate open letters. They're so old-fashioned, aren't they, Connor? Like, I mean, is the open letter still a thing? It obviously is for Gerald Lucknan. Maybe he's, <laughs> yeah. he's coming from a different era to me and you, Willie, but uh, yeah. Just write yeah. an article about it. Like, why is this open <laughs> letter to everyone? Just write a, you know, do an article with Gerald about it. If I does it, anyway. So he the latest a paper column as well, so yeah. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> right about it. So the latest controversy, obviously, in Clare, we spoke about the GPS kind of thing a while ago. I don't know. This one is um, this controversy. Um, the Sunday Independent and the Irish Times have it. And it's about the Hurling Supporters Club between 2012 and 2015. Now, there was money raised. I think it was 65,000. But Clare County Board had no connection to this supporters club. So this supporters club was, uh, this is this is my understanding, this Clare supporters club was raising money and it was being spent on the team and it was completely independent to the county board. And I don't know, Connor, is this like a huge scandal to you? Like, I mean, I, I would imagine this is fairly common throughout the country of maybe managers doing a deal and giving it directly to the players, maybe potentially worried that the players won't see all of it if, he, if they hand it over to the county board. Yeah, well, it, it, I'd, I'd say it's fairly obvious that it is quite common, Willie. I mean, there's there's any amount of examples, and I, like I don't have to look too far away from 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 it here in Mayo, uh, given what given given what's gone on here in the last couple of years. But I think what what is happening now, like even even Claire of uh, Claire of uh, answered this question and said there was uh, it uh, they knew it was operating independently of county board and supporters clubs have been in existence that have operated independently of the county board. But I would say is that like because of examples like this and maybe other examples throughout the county is that there seems to be a move to to kind of, I don't know, is it stamp out the practice, but to make sure maybe that, that more county boards are officially aligned with the yeah. supporters club. So 
I know in Mayo here it's called Mayo. Club Tyrone is a pretty famous one in Tyrone as well. And it, it, there's any amount of examples in different counties. Just to, I suppose, just to prevent any kind of suspicious activity, Willie, and to make sure that every kind of um, everything is is accountable and the county board can be answerable for it, as opposed to what's the case here in Clare for for the years that that was in existence. Well, yeah, I suppose if the, if you're using the, the the county and the county crest and the county, you know, GEA to raise money, well, then the county board, I'm I'm sure they should have that kind of copyrighted, if you know what I mean. Yeah. That you should, it should it should without their say so, you should never be allowed to use the Clare. Clear GEA to raise money, you know, without them giving you the the heads up. I don't know. I just think I don't, I, I don't think it's that much of a scandal, you know, if people are talking about clear GEA. But anyways, uh, Lachnan continued on the letter, so he felt he feels that they're moved, they're falling behind um, other counties, and he said the first half of the last decade brought us so many hurling highlights at underage and senior level that it's difficult to put a hierarchy of satisfaction on these. My own highlight was the under-21 All-Ireland final in Thurles in 2013, a game that was sandwiched between two epic senior finals in Croke Park um, that is never to be forgot in a never-to-be-forgotten September. That's incredible, actually. The Drew with Cork in the All-Ireland final had a replay against Cork in the All-Ireland final and had to play an All-Ireland under-21 final. I remember that going on at the time and they had so many fellas crossing over um, that time. He says, what made victory so special was towards the end of the game, clear youngsters of various ages um, seemed to emerge from nowhere and begin lining the perimeter of the field, hurlies in hands waiting for the game to end. There seemed to be thousands of them there and just as the final whistle sounded, they resembled a stream of locusts as they stormed onto the pitch. Like, I mean... It just like Clare won that senior All Ireland. They won an under twenty one All Ireland hurling in two thousand and twelve. They won three in a row. Then they won the senior All Ireland two thousand and thirteen, and they won the under twenty one in two thousand and thirteen. And then they backed up that senior All Ireland with another under twenty one in two thousand and fourteen. And since then, they only won one national league at senior level. And they were lucky enough to win that against Waterford. It was a dodgy enough free um, towards the end that Tony, mm. Tony Kelly got. Like, I mean, it's a massive underachievement when you think about it, Connor, isn't it? Like, I mean, to have that much talent, that much, t- pl- that many players coming through for them to reach the pinnacle so early, that pressure being off them and not even ha- get a Munster or, you know, an All-Ireland appearance after it. Yeah, like I, I suppose it has to be taken into context. The, the two, the two, the two main kind of under twenty one uh, hurling victories that stand out to me were I think it was Tipperary in twenty ten, and uh, Clare in twenty thirteen. And there's there's kind of a there's a danger in kind of falling into the trap of oh well this team is obviously going to dominate for years. You know what I mean? And it it rarely works out like that. But but when when a team is so success is as successful as that Clare team was as in when they put them back to back to back, you know, three in a row and they had won the senior one as you said for for a young team to win a senior that 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 must be a huge weight off their shoulders because there is that area of expectation. Once once you've got it done and once you've got it done early, it should really set the platform for you to go on and kind of you know, dom- dominate or at least make more of an impression at senior level than Clare did, you know, because like there's been a lot of really good hurling teams over that, like tip that tip team eventually, you know, came good to win a couple of All-Irelands, Kilkenny, obviously, and then the emergence of Limerick and Galway. So it wasn't just the underachievement of that Clare team, but they have like, what sort of impression have they made at all? I mean, the only thing I can remember is when they got to the All-Ireland semi-final against uh, Galway. Galway yeah. And Galway beat them by a point after um, after a replay in Thurles. And you can look at that and you can say, if they beat Galway that day, they could well have beaten Wardford in the final and gone on to win it. But that's really been the only thing. And if you're a Clare fan, if you're a Clare fan, considering the level of potential and the level of player that that team, that that triumvirate of 21 teams kind of produced, it really is a kind of disappointing track record since 
2013 in particular. Uh, it is it definitely is. that that kind of age group is pretty much you know on the on their way towards you know their late twenties. You know I'm sure um, now like the Limerick under 21s of the early noughties, 2000, 2001, 2002, they won three Munster under or two three All Ireland under 21 titles in a row and this was this big kind of you know how what happened those three teams they didn't even win a monster they only made they only made one monster final out of those three um three all-ireland under 21 winning teams they lost in 2007 to waterford um in that um what they ended up in beating waterford then in semi-final they made an all-ireland final but they only made one monster final that's a massive underachievement and we always remember them claire will never be seen as an underachievement because those young players won an all-ireland and what can you do more than that i suppose maybe it'll be seen as an underachievement, but at least they got the All-Ireland. Like, they can turn around and say, look, we won an All-Ireland from those underage teams. Galway, obviously, like, I mean, how many minor and under-21s do they have to win without dominating at senior level? One thing I always find these examples is the Clare and Limerick examples because they're under-21s. And under-21s going on to underachieve at senior I find is more difficult to understand than minors. Like, I mean, we had an incredible, we underachieved leash footballers um, at senior level. We only won one Leinster from a brilliant crop of minors, 96, 97 All-Ireland winners, finalists in 98. Then we won a Leinster in 2003. And in that same year, 2003, the minors won the All-Ireland finals. So we had another batch of of good minors coming in to an already established team. And, Mm. You know, for minors, it's a lot different. You're 18, you go to college. Mm. How many drop off from college? It's much more difficult. I always find with an under 21 team not going on, you've gotten past the college years. You know, the maybe potentially going off the rails years, you're a little bit more mature. I always find it harder to understand how under 21s don't go on ahead, you know, and win the All-Ireland, you know, or win yeah. um, at senior level rather than minors. Yeah, well, it's, as at under twenty one, you're 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 as good, especially these days. I suppose given like levels of strength and condition and stuff, you're fully formed. You're nearly fully formed when you're under twenty one, as opposed to when you're well, it's under seventeen now, county level. So there's so much more development to go into, and there's a there's a chance that people will fall off, you know, fall off the level before they get to senior. So it's harder to understand. But the only thing I'll say on that, Willie, is that I think it's easier to under, you know, it's easier to say about a team like Clare who won three back to back that they should go on and you know, they should go on and really achieve something. Whereas I think it's too much to me is made of a team that might win one All-Ireland or something like that. Or, you know, because they might have beaten the team, they might have beaten a team by a point in the All-Ireland final, you know, for example. And that team who won it is expected to go on, whereas the, the same expectation level isn't of the team that they beat. Yeah. And, and yet they were nearly at the same level. Sometimes I find that that, that is level that, that is level that under 21 teams where there's not that, history of success it might be only a one-off but it then but what but like in in limerick's case uh in the early 2000s and in claire's case that we've just spoken of when you have that level of success and when that team is staying together and that team is being brought through to senior level well then that's harder to understand if they don't translate it as opposed to as you said with the minors yeah and obviously you could have a very good under 21 team that beats that wins in the final against another team that has maybe six exceptional players and maybe the other yeah. nine aren't that great. 
and the other team is a better team. But who makes it better into senior? The team with the six exceptional fellas that go up and improve the senior team rather than the very well-rounded 15 that are an excellent team. Um, You know, that probably needs to be uh, pointed out as well. Um, We spoke about O'Neill shorts on last week's show. We were kind of laughing about the O'Neill shorts. And I was just reading a a really good piece in the Clarny Advisor during the week. Um, It was a piece written by Adam Minahan. And it's about Adidas sponsorship in the GEA. So it's it's a, it's a long piece and I'd advise anybody to read it because I thought it was very good. So in the late 1970s, Adidas uh, tried to make the breakthrough into the GEA world. They approached GEA teams to wear their gear. This was obviously a fairly controversial thing to do uh, because the GEA had very strict rules preventing uh, any teams from wearing foreign brands. So what Adidas did to get around the rule, they set up a partnership with a clothing manufacturer in Donegal called McCarters. So they approached Cork and Kerry. I think they approached Kerry maybe in 75, 76 about wearing boots, but they approached Cork and Kerry in 1977. And both of them wore the Adidas gear. The entire Cork squad got got suspended for six months by the Cork County Board. Frank Murphy um, decided to suspend them. The Kerry County Board didn't suspend um, their players at all because the bowed Mick O'Dwyer kind of saw a great opportunity you know with this Adidas gear and this Adidas deal and he convinced the Kerry County Board that this was a really good deal Adidas had kind of thrown a carrot in front of Mikko and said look we'll stick a few quid in your end of year holiday this round the world trip Mikko thought this was fantastic told the County Board whatever so Cork, Cork for wearing Adidas gear their County Board suspended them six months Kerry on the other hand out of their eight All-Ireland wins they wore Kerry gear for seven I think it's uh yes seven of the the eight of them they wore Adidas um jerseys so like I mean they were really ahead of their time Kerry back in the late 70s Connor yeah I'd um I'd only uh, heard glimpses of this before I think it was mentioned in the the Mikko documentary wasn't it yeah it it was yeah Whenever that was on, he was really, uh, he was really ahead of his time. I, I like, he was a bit of a style icon and kind of liked his, liked his image and liked his cars and stuff like that, and knew how to. Uh, he was, he was Del Boy before. Well, I suppose Del Boy would have been known at the time through only fools and horses, but uh, he put, uh, he put Harry Redknapp in the shade the way he was wheeling and dealing. But it's really, um, I the the the, the Adidas that I'd associate with Kerry would be in the late nineties where they wore that jersey for, for. Uh, for a couple of years and that kind of uh, that didn't last that that didn't last that long either and probably wasn't as nice but I didn't realize that they hadn't the, that they wore the um that they wore that the, the Adidas gears for the, for so many they're all earning wins but it's worth saying well he did say that uh Cork um suspended their squad for six months but it's worth pointing out that that was for county only and by the time the suspension expired the yeah Cork hadn't actually played any games but. I know yeah they were knocked out of the chat it was obviously knockout and by the time the six months are up the following year maybe has although the league probably started before Christmas I don't know I think that might have been the case but anyways the Kerry players were rarely seen out of the Adidas gear so they went to press nights wearing the gear they wore um, Adidas branded jerseys for the team photos um, on match days Kerry warmed up in Adidas tracksuits the substitutes wore Adidas tracksuits on the bench um, they used to hide the Adidas logo for match to get around <laughs> to get around the the kind of ban or whatever that the GEA kind of had like I mean it's just I, I can't get my head around it that this was really going on back in the the early 80s I remember in the mid 90s or the late 90s fairly sure it was the late 90s maybe early noughties this club energized deal 
maybe it was the Naughties, the, D, the GPA did this Club Energise deal, which was fairly controversial. So remember, remember this going on, Connor. whenever a player would be interviewed, you know, on RT or whatever after the game, to take the, the, the drink out of the Club Energise uh, bottle. And, you know, you mightn't notice it until you're told it. And then every interview, they're, they're swigging out of this. So this was kind of controversial. But like to think that Miko was thinking like this back in the early 80s, yeah, and, and just I was thinking about that as well. And you have to think that like, so this is obviously pre-internet, right? And this was when, you know, people's exposure to TV would have been maybe two channels. And obviously that like the, they wouldn't have been seeing much of English football or anything like that. So in terms of, uh, I know they didn't always get to wear them on the TV, but like Mikko was ahead of his time there and thinking that uh, an association with this, I mean, like if the Kerry players who were the superstars of their era are seen to be wearing this, and then that that's obviously having a huge impact on like, you know, kind of, people are seeing this on TV or people are, are seeing the carry players in this gear and they want to be in that gear as well. And then Miko aware of the impact that that can make and the financial benefits that that was going to bring to, um, to, uh, to, to carry as well, which they obviously did for holidays and all sorts of stuff. But yeah. the energized stuff fully, um, I associate that with maybe 2004, 2005. And, and I was going to ask you, like, was there ever a directive to players at the time to like, were you told to like, if you're pictured in a, in you know, if you're doing a post-match interview, have you told blatantly to make sure you swig plenty from the club energized bottle and make sure it gets on TV? Yeah, I don't know. I think I I don't know. If it was 2004, I don't know. I I don't have much of a, a recollection of it. I was thinking it was the late 90s there. That'll tell you what my memory's like. I don't well, know. I don't remember actually actively talking about it. I remember more seeing it on on television. I don't. I don't. Maybe I I, I don't know. Connor is. Do you remember the the one thing that that comes to mind? Because I remember a couple of GA players doing it, but nobody as blatantly as Brian O'Driscoll. Um, was spotted drinking, um, you know, the blue Powerade bottles, you know, the blue Powerade, I think it was around mid 2000s. And he was drinking, he did an interview and he couldn't have been more blatant. I mean, he might as well have just shoved the bottle in front of the camera. Yeah, so, a, lot of, so, a lot of them were being blatant. And then obviously there was a big, a big controversy because the Gooch went with Lucas Aid Sports. So they, Lucas Aid Sports saw this going on. Oshie McConville, Desi Dolan, I think Brendan Cummins, own Kelly and a few of more of these lads. Yeah, yeah. They went. They went with Lucas Aid Sports. So there's a big controversy. I really enjoyed it. I actually can't remember. I don't think I wasn't a member of the GPA. I, I figured out very early in my career after being initially a supporter of the GEA, I was looking at fellas getting these club energized deals. I was looking at uh, fellas getting their picture up on these billboards because of the club energized. I was looking at different deals players were getting, and then I was looking at myself thinking here what the hell am I getting out of this I'm signing up to this but it's only the very it's only the two or three players on the panel that are making anything out of it it says I'm getting very little back out of this and I, <laughs> I kind of pulled out no because it's important to point out that one of the very earliest GPA meetings um, there was a speaker from the PFA in the the Premier the Premier League and he said what the likes of David Beckham I think was the example he used that if he got a big deal half of the money or a percentage of the money would go back spread amongst all the members and he would get the other half. So I was like thinking, yeah, that sounds fair. We're all in it together. But as it turns out, it was just the three or four getting everything and everybody else got a hoodie. So I was like, this isn't really kind of what was kind of promised in one of these early meetings. So I kind of lost interest in the GPA at that stage. Yeah, but then like I, now that you mentioned that, William, think of it, um, and Bernard Brogan went into a fair bit of detail in his, in his book about like when Jerry Gilroy came in, Gilroy, sorry, when Pat Gilroy came in and was kind of speaking of the need for for Dublin to kind of, um, 
you know, make the most of their commercial potential. And having players like Bernard Brogan and others that like the deal was that like, yes, actively pursue this sort of stuff, but that the, the benefits you get from it, a lot of it goes back into the players fund and then can be put towards, you know, to put towards whatever Dublin needed to kind of enhance their, you know, their 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 training or, or whatever equipment they needed or whether it was just for a few quid for the lads. So like that that that's coming that's that's as late as 2010 so that that was probably a few years afterwards but i would have thought i would have expected as you said that part of the deal especially for the gpa was that you know the the the, the players that are you know being you know having their faces out there might might maybe because they're a bit more well known that it eventually comes back into the panel for everybody else to get a cut out of it but yeah obviously not if you're only getting the hoodie <laughs> yeah and what i didn't like was in the very initial club energize uh deal um jason sherlock got it which i didn't have a problem with because jason would be very high profile but sen and connell got it as well who wouldn't have been high profile and they're both nafina club mates of desi Farrell. when i saw that i went here i'm out of this bloody gpa i'm not having anything to do with it anyways just back to this um adidas thing so i'm going to finish up this probably a lot of listeners probably um know some of this stuff it was the 1980 final and the night before the 1980 final i'm not sure was this in miko's documentary it maybe a bit of it was but it was more it was mentioned uh, briefly so the ga director general liam mulvihill and president paddy mcflynn they called out to the hotel in malahide where kerry were were bef- were staying the night before the all final and they pleaded with miko they brought out a full bag of O'Neill's gear, green and gold, and pleaded with them to wear this. Imagine this now, the best team in the country. Imagine if this was happening now, Connor. the controversy oh. that would be going on around it. Like, I mean, the best team in the country, the best manager in the country, and they're blatantly telling the GA, no, we're not wearing what you're asking us. So they came in anyways, and Miko told them to think about it or whatever. And when the lads left the hotel, Miko, <laughs> Miko told them, like, I mean, this isn't going to happen. And anyway, they went out, won that final. They ended up getting fined in 1983 for refusing to accept the GEA um, directive for the last few years. And <laughs> Miko says they ended up getting fined 500 euros for wearing the Adidas gear, but they got 20,000 out of, out of Adidas for the few years. So, like, I mean, imagine Miko laughing. I think he did say that in his documentary. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, he did. Uh, he did. He did reference that one. I'm not sure that he referenced the... Um, the, the 1981, as you said, but if 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 he didn't, I, I would advise everyone to go back and read that piece that that you mentioned from the the Kerry Advertiser because it's uh, it's really interesting, it's really really detailed, but really interesting. But uh, just listen, another example of how far um, how far Mikko was uh, what ahead was ahead of his time. Yeah, exactly. One last uh, bit from this um, article as well was 1981, Mikey Sheedy. So he was a Puma man. He had done his own Puma deal. It's oh, it's generally free takers get these deals. Although, like, I mean, there has there's pl- loads of examples of non-free takers. But I couldn't believe that Mikey Sheedy back, Mikey Sheehy back in in 1981 was getting a boot deal. I couldn't believe it. And anyways, so there he's got his own Puma deal and Kerry have done a deal with Adidas. So Mikey's like, here, geez, Mikko, I'm comfortable in these Pumas. I like them. I've got my own deal. And like, I mean, even Mikko back then, Mikko says, I don't care what you wear. This is Mikey talking now. He says, the important thing is the team and you don't need to do anything. Keep wearing what you're wearing, but give them to me. I'll do a job on them. So Mikko took the Puma strip off the side and planted three stripes, the Adidas three stripes, just so Mikey would be comfortable in his Puma boots going out in the in the in the in the, in the match. 
Was that not a clear breach of his Puma boot deal? I'd say the Puma lads were onto him immediately after. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The only person that suited was uh, Mikey's comfort. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd say the deal was probably ripped up. He didn't get a penny out of it. That's a good point. I didn't actually think of that at the time. Anyway, this story got me thinking about boot deals. Um, I'd know boot deal um, when I was playing. I was a little bit jealous of the lads that that actually had but one man that did get a boot deal he was with adidas um for uh, for a while is connor mortimer and he joins us on the line now how's it going mort all right well it's not too bad man getting through it same as everyone else i think just about surviving exactly i think that's all we're doing we're just getting by so come here you were with adidas um how did this all come about uh oh go back what i suppose 2000 Oh, I think it was two thousand and two or three, maybe four. Some one of them two, one of them years anyway. Basically, Adidas had gone. There was six or seven of us. Actually, no, sorry, I quote. I'm wrong there. There was, there was probably about fifteen of us that got asked at that time about Adidas coming on board, about wearing their boots and getting. You know, you get a load of gear or whatever like that. Um, and I mean, look at, I suppose it was, it was changed for nothing, really. There was no real conversation about it. It was just a matter of, yeah, of course, um, yeah. get us on board. Um, I think it, you know, I, I, it was myself, McDonald from Mayo, Ken McGrath, Paul Galvin, Cooper, O'Shea, um, the three O'Sheas, I think actually, um, who was looking after Wilson. Wilson, Harty, PR, they were kind of in charge of the whole event and stuff like that. There was a big day for it um, into Dublin. Um, obviously, beware, obviously, the boots on the day. There was a mixture of boots, Predators, um, World Cups, blah, 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 at that time. Um, you just you, you didn't really get a choice at that time. You just put on the boot for, for photo shoots and stuff like that. They, they, they'd use in the papers, I suppose, closer to your games. Like, everyone had different different interviews for different days if you get me you know what I mean right right. Uh, and then the day before a game is a promotion you'd be wearing your Adidas t-shirt shorts and boots or whatever like that um, wasn't hugely big pickup at the time um, you know there was obviously a few I, I suppose snides in your own dressing room considering you were, you were I suppose getting this gear and you know I think it's <laughs> or whatever but that, that's who they went after at that time I think it was kind of the more Obviously, good players, but standard, different type of players as well who were who were asked to wear them at the time because there wasn't a huge amount. I think Trevor at the time was with Puma, um, and some guys were getting some from Umbro. You know, there was a little bits and pieces going here and there, but there was nothing major. I mean, the Adidas one was probably the best one at the time. I think we got, oh, do we get four, you know, two or three grand maybe, and you know, I think the whole contract might have been worth maybe five, so you get. A couple of grand worth of gear and boxes and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Right. Which you, so so you you'd go into their catalogue and you'd pick the boots and the gear you want and you get the few quid then as well. No, you, I'd always I I was always a predator, whatever type of predators were at the time. Um, right. And then you have a bag of gear in your size. You do, you wouldn't particularly pick it. Right. But just but all the same guys would get the same gear if you get me. You know what I mean? So you could be at something and bloody Ken McGrath is the top on or whatever. You know what I mean? Um, but big, big, big bags and stuff, man. At the time, it was um, that we got. Now, uh, we used to be getting cut. I get that time, geez, you could be getting like you'd always be saying, "Ah, oh, my boots are after bust," and you could be getting maybe ten or twelve pairs of boots in the summer. Like, 
in the in the same summer. What would you be doing with them? Selling them? Uh, no, look at I suppose you'd be trying to wear them pretty much as much as you can and give them away or do whatever you were doing with them. I see a lot of them worried the difference with Adidas at the time when you were getting your boots, they were made in Germany boots. They weren't your made in Taiwan or made in China. Right. The predator Germany. If you go into a shop tomorrow and look for a pair of predators, they're very unlikely to be made in Germany, you know what I mean? Okay. World Cups are. If you buy a pair of World Cups, you know yourself they last you probably in eternity. Predators won't, but the predators we were getting were German predators. They're pretty much the professional made boots. They'd last you probably. I, I like I had two or three pairs there that I got back in the day, man. I still have them. They're still perfect boots, like. Right. And did yeah. and and how long were you with Adidas then? So you got through your first year. Like, would you have a, would you have a review with them at the end of the year? You know that they got enough exposure out of you, or how long did you did you end up staying oh, with them? Oh, oh chat to Tom. I used to deal with a guy with Paul Maloney, just text or whatever. I think I was three years there getting stuff off them. And then they went, they weren't, they went to Munster during that period to look after Munster rugby. And it kind of quietened down the GA side then, do you know what I mean? Right. That that happened at that time. There was an awful array of boys with that at that time. But when they went to Munster, to sponsor Munster, I think the guys that looked after us was looking after Munster. So it kind of, it quietened it down a little bit um, in relation to who was wearing them and what people were getting. Now, I think by all accounts, you know, I've heard stories about your shares, man, when they went to Dublin to the warehouse, drove in, drove in, filled the car with Adidas at home, you know what I mean? <laughs> As opposed to getting our, our stock sent to it or whatever, but, you know, but um, probably the best part of three years was really. Um, right. Okay. And did you did you continue wearing Adidas after that? Obviously, you have a huge stockpile of boots at that stage, or would you, you know, maybe say to Puma, here, I'm out of that contract, they're not paying me anymore? No, I wore I've worn Adidas since I was a kid. I've never worn any other boots really. I wore Umbro Specialis actually in the minor final in two thousand and two thousand or two thousand and one, I think it was. Um, black Umbro Specialis. But I wore Adidas Predators after that for the rest of my life. I've never I still wear them to the day. I still haven't haven't changed. Now there was a time, I think I said it to you yesterday, I think it was I think it was, you know, it was before the 06 all earned final. I was waiting on boots to be delivered. We were getting we always got new boots at the final. Usually a couple of weeks out. Um, but just, with pan- guys, just with the panel, was it? No, Adidas used to be oh, with Adidas. Fine with the dates on them and all that crack, you know. Right. Uh, but they were delayed. And we got them the night before the All-Ireland. So I couldn't wear them in particular. But, um, but I had met a guy that week. I think Puma were kind of coming on stream in a few places. At that time, they were getting a little bit bigger with players. Um. And we got Puma boots for a week before the All Ireland. I wore them on the Tuesday and Thursday before the All Ireland. They cut the ankles off me. <laughs> we were getting lump sum or whatever, I think, to wear them in the final. Um, I said I'd try it anyways. Obviously, you, you, I think in them days you'd have done that for a few, Bob. Yeah. But um, didn't end up wearing them anyway in the end. But um, no, I did that. I, I pretty much worn them pretty much all my life, really. But I, as oh. I was saying there, was the German, you can get a pair from Germany, man. You can, you can get them today, wear them tonight. No problem. It's picture of foot like you know. Um, well, I thought that was the same with all kind of boots boots after the 2000s, because I remember being a young fella and you'd have the boots in the 90s and you'd wash them and you'd have to put Vaseline on them because they get rock hard. I thought the boots had gone to the stage during the during the 90s that they didn't cut you. You know, you didn't need that breaking in phase or, or maybe that's just the boots now. I think it was maybe the boot 
because I, I suppose it, it was a Puma boot that I was wearing as opposed to an Adidas boot. Maybe, I don't know. I just, I couldn't get used to the very particular boot, man, because they were very, a lot of the time when, in, in, as the years move forward, the boots are getting plasticky and they're getting lighter and they're, you know, the predators we used to wear then, when, even when, when you were playing the same as me, man, were thick boots, like they were thick leather and if they got wet, they were like bloody rocks on your feet. But when they were summer boots, there were there was a great thing off them where you wouldn't even, like I, I I would have found a lot of time with boots made hurting your foot kicking them and particularly in today's boots because they're so thin you know what I mean and there was no tongue on there's no tongue on a lot of boots these days they're like soccer boots you know yeah um, but you know they come back to the the German boots and they're just a different a different grade of boot really but they they, they it costs I think about 150 or 160 to produce a boot in Germany as opposed to Taiwan or China because they're, they're the, any of the contracted boots you, you'll find there, Beckham or Gerard or whoever, with Adidas and they get their boots, they're always made in Germany boots. They're not made in Taiwan or made in China or anything. That's, that's where the right. general boots would find in sports shops. You know? Now I know one or two of our lads did, I, I'm not sure who, went to Germany to get their foot molded. So if you get your foot molded, you can get every boot sent over to you, you can wear it any day of the week you want, Stand new boot out of the box, because it's specifically for your foot. I know, I think Corey Joyce might have did it a few years ago. Really? Like, if I recall, no, he wore uh, World Cups pretty much all the time. Um, but look, at like a lot of stories where he probably grew legs over the years, you know. Might have, yeah. Got the job in June. <laughs> Come here, you mentioned Puma coming in for you for that final because I was reading uh, Owen Mulligan, he was with Adidas the same as yourself. Um, other mm. Adidas, other Adidas were you mentioned a few of them Stevie McDonald, Paul Galvin, mm. then the hurlers, Tommy Walsh, Dan Shanahan, Joe Canning were all Adidas back then around your time. Muggsy was Adidas too, but his contract expired for the 2005 final. Um, and he said, I was still wearing the Predators when I scored the goal against Dublin. Um, so mm. before the All-Ireland final against Kerry, Knight came in for five of us. Me, Brian Doerr, Peter Canavan, Philly Jordan, and somebody else. Sean Kavanagh was with Puma. They offered us serious dough just to wear them, just to wear them in the finals. So like, I mean, Muggsy obviously, because there is, is a bit of a difference, Mort, when you're w- used to wearing Adidas nonstop and then you look down and there's a Nike boot on your foot. There is a, like it's, a, it takes you like a while to to get, not break them in because you'll break them in, but just to look down at your foot and not go, what, what's that? Well, there's a huge difference, man. Like I, I've always, you know, I don't know, I mean, maybe it's just me, but when you're kicking balls and you're kicking trees or whatever, man, you always, <laughs> You know your boot, like I mean, if I went out tomorrow with a different pair of boots, I wouldn't have near as much confidence in my, I suppose, rate to kicking than I would with a pair of Adidas that I wore on my life. Definitely not. Yeah, and I always booked in them boys that time. You know, it was a, it's a huge risk, man, because when you're, it's like wearing anything when you're doing something that you're used to doing with a, with a specific boot. You know what you're doing all the time, and then you change that. You know, especially in an All-Ireland final, I mean, regardless of what you're being offered, you know, I mean, they were lucky, I suppose, they won the game in the end. But yeah, well, I don't know if all five wore them now. I think they, he's saying that they came in for them, so I don't know, did, did they all take them up for the offer? Two who wore them in the final. Right. That time, did Nike on that day. There was a big, big bunch of them at that stage, but I, I, I know Klukko went with Nike for a while, it's kind of like when you hear the fella who's wearing them, what he yak. What's the story with that? Oh, there's a ref called Michael. So then you get Michael's number and you text him here. What's the story with getting a few pairs of boots? And away you go, you know what I mean? That's kind of the way it was for a while. So. Right, because that was the thing. Like, I would never have had the bottle. Ross Munley was Puma. 
um, when yeah. we were there. I think, I think Tom Kelly might have got Adidas uh, boots because I remember he had his name stitching in him and you pretty much had to have a deal to get your name stitching in him. Other yeah. Puma fellas were DJ Carey, Henry Shefflin, Trevor Giles, uh, Kieran McGeaney, Michael Donnellan, Dara Kaneda. They were always with Puma. I never really liked Puma. I never really liked the way they looked. I always found them to be like the older lads on the panel <laughs> would kind of wear them. But like, I mean, when you when it came to the stage that you'd get the mort stitched into your boots, this must have been a huge moment in, <laughs> in your career. Yeah, it was kind of an upset, man. An upset. <laughs> I suppose, you know, I think anyone who's a keen interest in soccer, man, you see every soccer player in the world has their name in their boots, whatever. And you're kind of, I think it was after when they came and they're stitched in as opposed to, okay, I don't know, was it always you could order a pro direct and have your name on them or blah, blah, blah. I don't really know. I wouldn't have bought boots that often online, but. You know, it's obviously, it, it, look, and I suppose, you know, it, it kind of adds to the, it kind of adds to the ammunition for people you're playing against. So that's, that's the one thing I would always say. I mean, people will say you're arrogant and you're this and you're that. And then you go with your name and your boots and you have your name on your shorts. And you, like I see people even today, name on the runners. Name, I do it myself, man. A lot of gear that I buy, it has a name on them. Not the so runners and the tops for trade, whatever it may be. And I don't know, it's just... I suppose when you get out of the system and out of the limelight, it's, it's no harm to remind people your name. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's obviously very good for the thieves on the panel. You, you, they can never wear your gear back to training then. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And come here, it, it, I have to say, though, it does work. Like, I mean, I can tell by you, you're able to tell me Doer wore those Nikes in the 2005 final. Like, I'm, I'm thinking of Dear McConnelly when he wore the Warrior boots. Like, I took an interest in what are these boots now? And I think Bernard yeah. Brogan might have worn Warrior. And I'd never heard of Warrior boots at that stage. And now I'm searching these boots and they're pretty nice boots. And the same with New Balance. When they came into it, a few of the Dublin players wore it. Like, it absolutely works for these boot manufacturers. Like, the, the amount of players that notice, and I'm not going to buy a pair of Warrior boots because Dear McConnelly or Bernard Brogan are wearing them, but I will notice what they're wearing and I will say, geez, that look, they look like a lovely boot. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. The marketing for boots will, has, has you know, changed upscale for pretty much donkey's years because you go back a few years, everyone was probably wearing Adidas. Everyone was probably wearing a specific boot. You could literally go back 15, 20 years and you see everyone on the pitch wearing the same pretty much, pretty same boots pretty much whatever was going at the time um i mean we had elveries with mail for a number of years there and yeah you can pick and choose your boots generally but sometimes you might just only have a choice of work up their monday or whatever they're pretty yeah yeah it, there's no doubt that and and i think it's you know those players that you've named they're pretty high profile players as well i mean you're going to say as opposed to you see a cornerback from bloody i don't know wherever some uh, a division three or four team and, you're, and he's wearing a pair of Mizunos. I know Kevin O'Neill, Billy Joe Padden, big Mizuno guys, no matter what offer they've ever got. Mizuno, Mizuno, because that's what they're into. Um, but, you know, there's no doubt about it, they do sell. And if, if, if someone is wearing them, you know, as you mentioned, you're going to say, geez, I'll try them. Now, I, I, I go back to the, even the Warrior boots that Conley and that worn. It kind of shows the difference. Where it just shows probably the better quality that he would he would have, I suppose, as opposed to and confidence in himself that I would have in myself because I wouldn't change like that. Where he'll go out and wear a different boot, yet he still perform the same. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There was yeah. no difference in performance, man. It didn't really matter, and that that kind of goes 
there's always an argument, I suppose. It doesn't really matter what boots you have. It did to me, but obviously it doesn't to him. The same with Berno. You know, that, and look, it takes them time to, I suppose, get used to of those particular boots. I know Connie was working it with New Balance and, and Warrior Warrior was a big thing. I know McCaffrey wore them for a couple of spells. You know, it's funny when you see it, but, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to see the stats in relation to, you know, sales of those boots after a particular game. Whatever yeah. The Warrior on that because, I mean, Dublin, any any young fellow looking at a Dublin player and he's wearing this, right now, I mean, I want that for Christmas. I want yeah. this for Christmas. Oh, <laughs> no. It's it's an it's 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 a no brainer. Like I mean, it's a no brainer. Like say, if, if, for example, then in two thousand and two, you were getting two or three grand, you know, a, a couple of big boxes of gear and ten pairs of boots. Like I'm not talking about Dear McConnell or Bernard Brogan. I'm just t- even thinking of because both of them are are finished up now. Like what would the very top players do you think be getting now? Like I mean, are, like are you looking at ten grand and then unlimited boots and unlimited gear or some sort of a deal like that for boots? Well, I think well now due to the fact. You know, I go to the likes of Ed and O'Shea or these guys. I, I think they have a lot more bargaining power now. Someone comes in, offers you five grand. No, sorry, it's not enough. I'm going to go with X, Y or, or go to Adidas and get 10. I think that that wasn't there in our time, where it is now. Right. There's a lot more options. Ah, there is. And there's a lot more, you know, I suppose coronavirus hasn't helped in relation to getting, you know, looking at star players and marketing players. But I definitely think that you know, there's a lot more different boots out there now as opposed to the was then. I mean, you have, you have a various, any array of boots now that, that people wear. I mean, even some guys wear ASIC boots and stuff now around the place. I mean, it's, it's you know, but I suppose the bargaining power that some players have, <clears throat> but I suppose it boils down to the team you're playing with as well. I mean, obviously O'Shea would be a big name. Killian O'Connor would be a big name. Any of the Dublin players, man, if you're on the Dublin team and you're you're going to talk to some company about wearing whatever boots, man, you have serious bargaining power because you're going to be in the limelight. You're generally going to be there all in a semi-final or in a final and there's a good chance you'll do an interview and mention, you know, I, I've, you know, you put in whatever way you want to put it in. You're wearing fucking Adidas or wearing Nike or whatever it may be on that particular day. And it, it's, I'd love to know the, I suppose, the ins and outs of the finances, how they can kind of corresponded back into right Jeremy Connolly wore these boots in our final that we're after turning over this amount from that particular day. It's very interesting to see those those numbers because that's what companies will, will boil it down to. They don't do it for nothing, you know. Yeah, no, no, that's exactly right. I don't know, Mort, how many people will have enjoyed this conversation, but I've enjoyed it because I have a very keen interest <laughs> interest in boots as as you do. Come here, thanks for thanks very much for taking the call. Well, take it easy man. Talk to you soon, bro. All right, great stuff from from Mort there. Um, moving on, I saw Alan Quirk. Um, he had there was quotes in the Examiner. He was on a Cork webinar from goalkeepers, Connor, and he must have been listening to the show uh, last week when we were or two weeks ago when we were, we were talking about goalkeepers and how they're how sensitive they are. He said sometimes maybe we take ourselves a little bit too seriously as goalkeepers. He says, and then he goes on to talk about the different skills of goalkeeping, and he says there's five principles of goalkeeping: kickouts, shot stopping, handling general football skills, communication and organisational skills. Now, I would put handling and general football skills in the same, you know, kind of category. But he went on to say, which I thought was an interesting one, he says, a key part of a goalkeeper's development to potentially becoming one of the best of his trade is to play outfield at club or school's colleges level. And I can see the logic behind that, Connor. 
perfectly. Like, I mean, you know, the goalkeeper now has to be an all-rounder and he needs to be good on the ball. He needs to be an excellent kick passer, but he needs to have the ability to take a ball under pressure, etc. Now, mm. I the, the issue I have is how good is he outfield? Like, I mean, you can't just go to your club club manager and say, right, I'm an inter-county, I'm an inter-county standard goalkeeper, but I don't want to be a huge asset to the team. I just want to be a bit part, maybe a liability as a, as a wing back or a wing forward. Yeah, and what if you've no other keeper? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then you're putting somebody who's obviously not up to it uh, in goals just so your inter-county keeper can play outfield. So, yeah. like, I get where he's coming from, but, like, you know, they have to. everyone has to cut their cloth to suit their measure. I mean, if it doesn't suit your club team, if you're either not good enough to play outfield or if there's nobody good enough to play in goals instead of you, well, then it's just not going to happen, I'm afraid. Yeah, that's it. Cluxton tried this when, when I was with Parnells, um, interestingly enough. He, he told the manager he wanted to play outfield. And like, I mean, Cluxton has notions that he's a good outfield player and Cluxton is brilliant on the ball. Um, he's an excellent kicking technique. You can see that from, you know, when he plays in goals. If he's if he's kicking points unchallenged, he'd probably be more accurate than me. He's great control off his le- off his left foot, you know, curling them over the bar. But just because you're a good kick kicker of the ball doesn't mean you're a good forward. He wanted to play wing forward. And like, I mean, he was probably wouldn't have been a senior level wing forward. And he's by far and away the best goalkeeper that's ever played the game. And I'm like, how is this even a conversation? We've an average wing forward, you know, who's a, he's an excellent kicker. And we've the best goalkeeper of all time. What is going on? I said to the manager, I says, tell him to cop on. Was he doing this, Willie, as, as what you said with Alan Quirk there about trying to improve his... You know, a part of his development to become a better keeper. Or was he just doing this because of you said his notions that he was uh, that he was a decent wing forward and should have been playing there instead of playing the goal? Hard to know. We'd have to ask Cluxton. Only he never does interviews. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Cluxton, being the the legendary goalkeeper that he is, maybe he was thinking that far ahead and he was thinking of improving his out outfield uh, skills. Who knows? I think he just enjoyed kicking points. That was boarding goals. That was my theory on it. Um, you know, but anyways, that I just thought it kind of jumped into my mind when I saw Alan Quirk. I think it's a non-runner. If you're an inter-county goalkeeper, you're a huge advantage to your club as a goalkeeper. Now, there, there obviously are exceptions to that rule. Or like if Cluxton wanted to play outfield, if the club was at junior level, he'd probably be a good, really good outfield player at junior level. But like, I mean, for, at senior club level, I think it's a bit disrespectful at senior club level for an inter-county goalie to be demanding to play outfield on that on that team. Yeah, well, especially if he's keeping better players off the team in the wing forward line and especially if Parnells are going to be better served with him and goals, which I imagine you would be at that stage where you were playing them, you were playing for the Mully, there was a few more kind of outsiders playing for them as well. It would have been one of the top clubs in Dublin at the time. So, like, it makes perfect sense for me to be, for Stephen Cluxton to be in goal as opposed to being wing forward. Like, you could say if, if, Say if two two county standard goalkeepers happen to be at the same club, and you're into county goalkeeper is a better outfielder, you know, than than the other one, then it makes sense maybe. You know, when you know that somebody, you know, your number two is is nearly as good as you, and then you can, and you as a as a number one are good enough to play outfield. But like I'd say, the circumstances where that applies would be quite quite rare. And then you might have situations like you had with Parnells when somebody is demanding to be playing outfield where it's not for the good of either themselves probably or the team. Yeah, James Horan was talking to local media. He's on the Mayo News um, for the first time since the All Ireland, and I, I had to laugh at this kind of sentence. He was he was talking about the All Ireland win, and it's like how to speak 
without saying anything at all. This is kind of like the Jim Gavin, Eamon Fitzmaurice. James Horan's obviously perfecting this. He's talking about the All-Ireland final. And he says, we look very honestly at what we did and what we tried to do, how we tried to play and look back individually and as a group and take learnings from it and go away with those and try to build and improve and grow and develop for the next game. <laughs> like, I mean, it's such, isn't that such waffle? But like, you could be thinking about that going, yeah, very, yeah, very kind of interesting, you know, as a group, not individually, just, you know, as a group develop next game. It's, you know, it's gobbledygook, really, but I don't want to be too critical of James Horn because he does get a bit more specific later on. I just wanted to give that sentence. I always remember interviewing um, Eamon Fitzmaurice after games and he'd always say the same thing. Ah, there's a lot of things that we we want to work on. We wouldn't be entirely happy with that performance. And I'd always say to him, like what? Ah, well, like, you know, um, you know, there'll be a few things, you know, that we, ah, look, we'll probably have to watch the video now to be able to give you a good answer on that. And now, you you know, that's completely gone, but he's just pawning you off. But when he did get a little bit more specific, OK, this first part isn't specific. He says there was a couple of bouncing balls we could have won. <laughs> that's not specific at all. A couple of hand passes that if they went through a couple of basic things under the highest pressure or the highest pace that you can do them, that's where it's at. OK, so he didn't really get specific at all. But like, I mean, here here was the thing, you know, that. Oh, yeah. Then he goes on to say decision making. Like I was always wondering, you know, decision making. He's kind of James Horner's kind of talking about things that they can improve on. Is decision making something you can really work on? I know you can talk about it. So say, for example, Mayo had a couple of moments in the game where a bad decision, you know, a move broke down. Now. Like, I mean, I remember when I was playing, like my decision making at times could be terrible under pressure up near the goals because I would have been a bit like a fish out of water up there. And mm. I don't know if I could necessarily improve that or I don't know. There's there's not necessarily drills you can do to improve decision making. Maybe it's just meetings, talking about it, seeing examples and thinking about it yourself. Maybe this whole magical thing of visualization maybe comes into effect here where you need to picture scenarios that when that happens in a game, that you're you're not going to panic and give the stupid ball. Well, so there's a couple of things in this bully. Like I, I would like James Horan ticked all the like. There's a number of boxes for the James Horan bingo that were ticked there. Like in terms of learnings and develop and grow and all that sort of stuff. The one thing I will say about him is that he, you know, he he does practice what he preaches as well. Is like he's always about kind, of, you know, skill levels and you know he used. When he was a pundit, he used to wax lyrical, lyrical about Dublin and their individual skills and stuff like that. And I think that ties into decision making to a certain degree. So you would have when you watch Dublin play, for example, and their execution. So like their de- decision making has been improved by the fact that, like, let's say if it's the right decision to make a pass with their left hand, they're able to do it because they've improved their skills to that level. Do you know what I mean? And you can replicate you can replicate the environments where where you have to make those decisions as much as possible. So like you always think with Dublin, for example, when they get a three on two or a three on three, that a goal is on because they've done it so many, they've done it so many times and they've replicated that environment so many times that you expect them to deliver. Now, at the same time, I think you can try and replicate that environment, those environments as much as you want. But I still think there's an elite level player, you know, the really top level players that they're just, yeah, you can practice as much as you want, but they have something about them that they just, you just know that they're going to make the right decision 90 to 100% of the time. And there's an element of it that's not coachable just because they're really the best of the best. But uh, Yeah, I think that's what separates the very, very top players is their ability under pressure 
to make the right decision in the, I, I don't know. Can you practice that as such? You know, like, and yeah. I, like I, I'm as a pundit, I can see exactly what you should do in a scenario. But when you're on the pitch, I, yeah. I didn't always take that right. Like I used to get, I could give some terribly stupid passes on the pitch and you'd look back and I could see it in a match, something that I was actually doing. Jeez. And I'd be like, well, that, you know, that's this terrible decision making. But when you're under, I always find your decision making when your confidence isn't that high, you double guess, what should I yeah. do here? And then, then you're completely gone. All bets are off at that stage. Then you don't really know what to be doing. Or then your manager gives you instructions to do something. And you're wondering, do I want to impress him by doing what he tells me? Or is that the right thing to do in this scenario? You know, and these things are rushing through your head. And then your brain scrambles. And I often find, when I often made the wrong decisions on the field, it was because I was double guessing either, am I doing what I'm being, what I'm being asked or what I think is right here? Yeah, and especially sometimes um, sometimes when you have the time to second-guess yourself, if that makes any sense. So imagine if you're running through on goal with 30 yards to spare and all these scenarios are kind of run through your head. Do I place it? Do I try and rattle it? All that sort of thing. Whereas if you got the ball from on the burst, for example, and you just hit it on instinct and, you know, you just smashed it to the net or something like that. But like on that, like I think if you take a raw player, for example, a player who's quite raw, they are coachable to a certain degree. Do you know what I mean? They can improve... They can improve massively in loads of different aspects. But that element of rawness, I think, will still remain. And I think it'll still remain mostly in their decision making under pressure, as you say. Whereas, there's, as I said, there are there is an elite level who just have that. Nat- and this is this is a personal thing. I like people will, will feel free to disagree, obviously. But I just think that that the really, really separates the cream from the crop is that they just have that natural instinct to always make or to most of the time make the right decision. Yeah. And no matter how much how much improvement you can make or no matter how much how coachable you are that you might still be missing that compared to the really really top players the the example i always use was when i was put in um at full forward um and but, but colin brown put me in full forward and and miko put me under full forward but like i i'm always happy enough to admit like i mean with my back to goal i wasn't an accurate full forward so i was happy enough to put me in as a target man full forward and my instructions were get out in front of your man and lay it off to lads running past you, which I was more than happy to do. But you know when you get a ball sometimes and you can feel that your man sees the fella running towards me, knows I'm going to give him the hand pass yeah. and actually peels off me to hit this fella a good slap. Like the right thing to do in that scenario is to dummy the pass to him and go the other way. But then if that goes wrong, I'm getting absolutely peeled by the manager. So I've often, not often, but on, on occasions, I've given that hand pass to the fella knowing that he's like he's going to this move is going to break down now because you know I didn't have the confidence to just use the dummy and go the other way because it was being hammered into me. I'm only there to throw off the ball in that role. Yeah, well, like uh, I suppose that the, not not to not to kind of rat on you, Willie, or whatever, but the best of the best then will, no matter the, the specific instructions provided to them, and that is I'm com- I'm comfortable with that, Connor. Oh, that's fair enough. We'll realise that the best thing to do is to is to throw that dummy solo or to throw the dummy pass, and then to to go yourself if if you have the confidence to take the shot on, because then you become as as useful as you are as an outlet in the full forward line. You become predictable as the guy who you know if you do that for five games in a row. The opposition looking at you will say, "Well, this guy isn't going to shoot, lads." You know, so you know, just maybe give him, give him the chance because all he wants to do is is lay the ball off. So we have to be ready to meet the guys who are going to be coming, coming off the burst because that's what he's going to do. That's what he's always yeah. going to do, and yeah. that's going to put you off as a result. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. But I suppose after maybe having two or three games of impressing them, I was able to maybe then 
you know, add a couple of little bits into it. But at the at the start, I absolutely had to follow, you know, the instructions that they that they were telling me. Qu- quickly, Paddy Durkin was talking actually this week as well, and I was surprised to hear this at this level of sport, Connor, that he pulled his ham pulled his it's his quad, isn't it? It is yeah. his quad. Uh, three and a half minutes into the game. Now, he played on because you can feel a little niggle and you're going, oh, God, oh, no, Jesus, I hope this doesn't go. And then just before the water break in the first half, he went running, sprinting, and it went. Like he gave it a pull where he knew it was gone, went off at the water break, told the medical team, and amazingly came back out onto the field to mark Kirigal Kenny in an all in final. I, I would have thought those days were gone at this very, very serious level. Yeah, well, especially for a muscle injury like that. Yeah, you don't run that off. No, no. And and a player like Paddy Durkin, who is so um explosive, do you know what I mean? Who whose whose whole game is based on kind of bursts of pace. Do you know what I mean? Like I was uh I was made like uh, like like I think most Mayo most Mayo fans will say about that game that we didn't realise till the halftime break that Paddy Durkin was in trouble. So maybe I don't know what that says about Paddy Durkin that he was able to disguise it for the second half of that water break. Playing against here and Kenny, who was quiet, and I know Paddy Durkin said he mightn't got much ball or whatever, but yeah. Kenny was really quiet, and I think that owed a lot to how Paddy Durkin played. But like nowadays, if if he told the medic and if he told the management, I I I, I do find it baffling that that he that he stayed on the pitch as important as he was. You know, arguably Mayo's best player. Still, I just find it very strange that with with that, like Paddy Durkin hasn't gone back training since. He's not back fully training since as a result. Right. That's that's. Three months ago. That'll tell you how bad it was. Yeah, it's, it's incredible, really. Even for his own player welfare, like you say, like he could be out for six months if he was to go back out and do that again. And you, like you say, Paddy was very honest about it. He says, I don't think I don't think necessarily it was my brilliant defending or anything like that. I thought we played better football in the first half as a team. There wasn't that much ball coming into him. And that's true. And like, I mean, probably count your blessings that Paddy didn't come out in the second half because Dublin kind of took over um, a lot more than they did at Mayo, the better team in the first half. So Kilkenny obviously got more ball and Paddy, you know, the quad could have been, you know, seriously, seriously damaged, um, you know, by then. But I definitely thought at that level of sport that if you come out, if you come off at the water break and you say, here, look, no, I'm after giving it a pull, you kind of have to be taken off at that stage with a with a muscle injury. I'm going to leave you with this one, Connor, because this kind of annoyed me when I read it. Um, this is the GPA this week. They're hosting a series of videos for all of its membership and they're trying to give them tips on the social media minefield. I know all about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the, the man is... Get, what? <laughs> Have they got you in to speak to them? <laughs> well, I could give them some advice. Well, I wouldn't give them the same advice as this Kieran File fella. So he's a professor in linguistics and uh, and he's the MD of reactive sports media. So he's talking to these GEA players about their use of social media. And like here, here is the kind of tips he's given them. So he he's given them tips on players who are looking to create brands for themselves on social media. So he says, what aspect of your athletic story are central to your identity? What other aspects of your identity do you want to share with the world? Design a strategy for enacting this brand. What posting behavior will help you directly or indirectly establish and communicate your brand on social media? What makes you unique? What story do you have to tell? Oh, my God. Like, I mean, is this for this fella actually for real? Like, I mean, I've built up a fairly good following on Twitter. And the idea that any of this, like I would t- 
tweet something without even almost like I'm sending my friend a text message. Then he goes, continues on. He says, under the headline, are you managing your reputation on social media? Footballers and hurlers are told to share contact that makes a positive contribution to people's day and to be tactful. Make managing your important relationships an important consideration when you design your post. Like you think you're talking about a work of art here, Connor. You're designing uh, a tweet. Like, I don't know. It just sounds so contrived to me. Like, why can't the advice to these GA players be be yourself? Don't be stupid on social media. Don't draw any unwarranted attention to the team on social media, especially during the season. But be yourself if you want to be yourself. This is to me. This is just like oh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm just picturing you, Willie, in the morning, thinking uh, before I tweet today. What, <laughs> as, what, what aspects of my athletic story are central to my identity? Yeah. Or what, what, what? Yeah. How will I add to my brand today? And then start giving out about COVID or something. <laughs> how, will, how will I enact my brand before putting a poll out and the late late show on? Uh, <laughs> but here's, the, here's yeah. the thing, though, Connor. Like, I mean, I often say, well, with with my Twitter. Like, I mean, my Twitter will kind of reflect the mood I'm in that day. For example, if I'm having a really bad day and I'm getting really frustrated about the whole COVID thing, you know, or I'm stuck in the house or, you know, I might tweet three or four times about COVID that they given out about it. But is that not just me being myself? Nobody's perfect. And if you want to vent or if you want to say a couple of things, that's your own personality. Like people might think you want to give out about somebody like what's wrong with being yourself? I don't get I don't get it. Why you would try to think so deeply about social media? Should you not be yourself on social media? Is the point I'm making? Is that not the best advice you can give anybody? Yeah, well, I, I would I would have thought so. Well, I would have thought that that is what social media is for, Willie. But like, say the, the paragraph that you read out there a while ago about, uh, you know, designing strategy for enacting the brand and posting behavior and all that sort of stuff. I suppose, like, like, like it or not, I suppose that like GA players now, uh, that that's uh, their brand or their profile on social media is like a, it's a legitimate kind of um, career direction for them to a certain degree in terms of like there's 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 money to be made there in terms of association with brands and stuff like that and potentially thinking of a career in you know career post uh, post their GA career if their if their their reputation if their profile is high enough that that's a de- definite road that they can go down so. Yeah. So maybe they're thinking that if they're too, um, if they're too kind of on social media, that that affects that it's going to affect their their but the ability for brands to associate with them and, and affect their earning potential in, in 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 the process. Maybe, but like I mean, all, all panels are made up of different characters. Like, who are the funny ones? Who are the sarcastic yeah. ones? Who are the grumpy ones? Like, should that not be reflected? Like, should we not be able to tell? Oh yeah, we can see what he's like. You know, on Twitter, he's 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 a gas man. You can you can clear, clearly like if this is the kind of advice are getting we never know any sort of personalities in in teams like i mean even the day of i'll always remember i was think it was 1992 and i have a very clear recollection of this leash beat mead in in up in navin and mead had been like the team that couldn't be beaten they actually were beaten in the 91 final by down who were brilliant um, and leash beat them away in navin and i remember like in 1992 i would have been 14 and i remember being on the hill had great memories, really, really hot day. And I remember walking back down to the bus. Um, we were there with the fo- football team with Portlaoise under 14s. And I remember Desi Farrell being close to me as I was walking down. And there was he was just in his normal civvies walking down with his gear bag around him. And there was all the dubs clapping him on the back. And I, I just remember being a young fella looking at Desi Farrell like, oh, Jesus, this, that, it's just a superstar. Yeah. Like, 
players now don't even walk down out of the ground with with the with the the fans. They don't even go down and have a pint in the pub with the with the fans anymore. Like you don't even see them around. They get into their tracksuits straight after the match, get into a bus and might go and sit in an ice bath or go for their meal. That connection is being broken all the time. Maybe I'm showing my age or something and I'm not able to identify with the game now. And it, it's obviously changing. But I think it's sad that these players are being told to be this corporate and this contrived on social media by the GPA. And a connect, there's no, the connection is, is, is growing wider and wider and wider between the fans. Am I overthinking this? <laughs> No, no, you're not overthinking it at all. Like, but like, you, you, you do make a point there in terms of what that was 92, 91, 92. And in this day and age, if you can imagine if somebody was walking down the street, you know, to, to a game like that, there'd be 500 pictures up on, you know, on on Twitter or on social media. And they have to be conscious of that and, and kind of the impact that 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 makes kind of um, maybe on themselves and on the team as a whole. Like you, the, the point that you were making there in terms of uh, I, I, I would like that as well, Willie, if, if somebody was confident enough in their own character, do you know what I mean? And that confident enough in their own common sense that they could be themselves on, on their social media channels, for example. But they have to be, can they also, you know, cope with the fact that somebody might be in their ear telling them, oh, you have to be, you know, that's that's doing us no good or anything like that or that's you you need to be quiet or stuff I, like i wish they would i wish they wouldn't but probably you know for 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 their the, for their own protection or for their you know protection of the the county team whatever is that intercounty players are be are are being told of the need to to be cautious and to and to be very careful about kind of how they put themselves out there and like it's it's a shame in terms of we, we don't get the we don't get the 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 characters maybe that that we used to they, they they're not maybe they're not maybe as kind of um, as uh, as present in, in 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 as you as you said like the Desi Farrell stories they used to be, but I, the, it, it comes back to this is probably the world the world we're living in at the moment, and it's, it's a bit of a shame that they can't be like that. Yeah, yeah, or maybe I'm just getting old and, and giving out and getting getting <laughs> you, a little you, bit grumpy. Right, Connor, we've t- we've probably gone way over time there. Only one interview, uh, but loads to talk about this week. We'll leave it there, and we'll come back again next Thursday with another show. So we'll talk to you all then. Good luck. <laughs> And when I started running, I suppose I didn't stop. And when I got the chance to go, I said I'd stay going. So I opened up. We're only the small little fish out there, so we are. And uh, we're trying hard to make it through. But it's hard to get the breaks when you're the smaller fish. Because I love this county so much, you know. And it's just, I'm delighted that the lads, the lads did it for the people of Walford today. Because, like, I'm, hard, I'm heartbroken. I that dust coming from still finding debris after vacuuming eufy x10 pro omni robot vacuum has 8000 pa of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets and it's totally hands-free want to know more go to eufy.com that's eufy.com and discover x10 pro omni the best in class all-in-one robot vacuum for only 799 dollars